Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Greetings and welcome to the Eastern Border. This is our first show ever, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Well now, as much as I'd said into the intro as I'd like to make a purely historical or a purely political show, whenever there's something about the Soviet Union, it always gets turned into something of a mix of them. I was preparing to make this first episode to be about Perestroika, because I have on my hands a book by Mikhail Gorbachev, the last general secretary of the Soviet state and the first president of Soviet Union, Perestroika and the New Way of Thought for Our Country and the World, written in 1987, where he talks about his glasnost and perestroika programs, and he talks about the political situation in Europe at the time, about how it's going to look into the, in the future. He talks about the USSR-USA relationships, criticizes United States for many, many things, such as the involvement of the military-industrial complex in the political decision-making process and all the special interest groups. And some of these things are now and then even valid, and I've heard a lot of people, especially podcasters and independents, talk about them in the modern context. And he also says a few things the modern Russian government would never say about peace, about the involvement of the Soviets, about what role should the Soviet Union fulfill in the world, and what, what, what are its views on basically everything. And he makes very interesting predictions about the future, and what it would hold, and how would this system, as he envisioned it, with USSR still existing, work in the 21st century. That includes split Germanys. But then, then the my editor... Alice just asked me, and she's younger than I am, I'm 26 at the moment, I have a master's in philosophy, she's 20. And she asked me, but Christos, what is perestroika? You just keep speaking about this concept, what it is. And I thought, well, everyone knows what perestroika is, that's even how you'd call it in English, right? And glasnost as well, okay, glasnost is a bit less known term than perestroika, I think, but... It's a, it's a term by this point. It's not just some word in, in Russian. And then what does it mean? So, for all of this to work okay, I understood that I probably should start by explaining what perestroika even is and why is it important. 
And then, while reading this book, I sort of had to go back there and, and look at a lot of things which made the Soviet Union as it was, so that you would understand why the collapse was so interesting and how it came to be. Because this book holds all these little predictions, and it's the only book of which I know of, which is written by this Gorbachev, where he truly explains the Soviet ruling elite's views on how things were supposed to happen in the future, right? And he, for example, states that, quote, In the West, including the United States of America, our perestroika process is being explained in several different ways. One of them is as if it had been created by the catastrophic state of the Soviet economy, that it represents some sort of a moral failure for socialism, the crisis of its goals and ideas. Of course, nothing could be, could be further from the truth. Sadly, it just was the truth, and, ex- and he explains it later. But in a way, what, what was perestroika then? Perestroika literally means reforming, rebuilding. It comes from the Russian word strait, which means to build. Perestroika means re-stroika would be rebuilding. Perestroika would be like over-rebuilding, mixing up. It's also reforming. It's, it's the term for the reform. It's the official term for the reforms the Gorbachev imp- implemented in the Soviet Union. But the term itself is very interesting because I don't, I don't really know. It's not like, it's not the reformation in the same sense as, for example, the reformation in the Catholic Church by Luther, right? The core values, in his mind, stay the same, but the processes around, the processes around them are being rebuilt, but why should they be rebuilt? What was the purpose of this rebuilding thing, which essentially led to the Soviet Union crashing down and imploding on itself, and my country, Latvia, being formed again, and Estonia and Lithuania and Poland getting its political independence from the Soviet influence. Perestroika is the second most important period of Soviet era, right after World War II. I'd, I'd dare to say that it's a bit more... It's not more important than the Cuban crisis, for example. But I understood that for me to talk about this book and how the Soviet leaders planned on the political agendas, planned their political agendas for the 21st century, I would have to go all the way back to Mr. Khrushchev in the late 50s, early 60s, and then just tell you the whole story of the Soviet era politics and life there. And I'm not sure that we're going to do it right now, but I, I'm starting to think that that would be the, the best thing ever, um, just to explain some things about it, because, you see, in a way, perestroika was just the end result of what happened in the 60s, in the early 60s, especially, Khrushchev said it just grew out of that. It just happened to be the logical conclusion of the Soviet state, to be honest. 
It didn't happen because Mr. Gorbachev decided that he wants to be super nice to everyone. It happened because that was the only thing that he could do to even try to hold the Soviet state together as one. So what I'm, what I am going to be doing in this podcast and the following ones is what I have been doing before I started podcasting. And I'm going to use the materials written by me in the Dan Carlin forums. And I will try to explain to you how life was in the Soviet Union. Because it's all one long, hard process of crashing down economically and politically, starting from Khrushchev. Nothing went up in the Soviet Union from 1962. 62 was the peak here for Soviet Russia, economically speaking, and then it all just came crashing down. You can read in some other more informed history books about all the leaders and all the political games which is going on there. But for this episode, yeah, uh, for this episode I want to introduce you to the life of the average Soviet citizen starting from basically 60s. Essentially, imagine this. It's year 1962, and we'll be talking about how the people were living there. Leaving the political games and the conflicts aside for a bit, and I will be trying to make some coherent story to you about how the Soviet state operated in general and what were the lives of the people there. These stories come from the people who actually live there, my parents, grandparents, and a bunch of friends and stuff gathered on the internet, and some books available right here in Latvia about it. I'm not exactly sure that there are many books in English about the life of this. And then at one point we will just go and take a look at the Perestroika, and what did that mean? Because, you know, let's start with the fun part. What you didn't know about the Soviet Union. What is the other side of the Cold War? How I'd like to call it. So, to start our road back to the 60s, let's return to the quote by Mr. Gorbachev and the fact that he says that the Soviet crashing down, catastrophic state of the Soviet economy is just a bunch of lies. Well, for one, it wasn't. And here's why. For one, the communist system, at least in the Soviet Union, didn't exactly run like normal countries like other capitalist countries. See, the socialism, as much as it sounds like it's being run by the people, for some of you out there who are really pro-socialism ideas, it's actually run by bureaucracy. You see, the Communist Party didn't change its leaders very often. Technically, the state owns everything, right? But if you own everything, then you have no means whatsoever how to be removed from your position. It was a dictatorship by the bureaucracy, by that one party. And that means a total control of all the country's resources. Other people, as much as you'd like to think that everyone gets split up everything equally, you know, when you don't change government for a long, long while, because nobody wants to leave, because then you'll just lose control of all of this, it kind of begins to stagnate. That's also one of the explanations for Stalin's repressions in 1937 and in other years. And here is where I disagree with Dan, because those generals that Stalin killed in 1937, yeah, they weren't 
as smart as people outside of the Soviet Union like to think. Tukhachevsky, for example, wanted to build a bunch of World War I tanks to fight and spread the ideas of communism instead of, for example, doing what Stalin did and building railroads and industrializing the whole country. He also had some very, very crazy military ideas about waging a constant war against Poland, and he managed to actually lose to Poland at one point during the Civil War. But why Stalin did these repressive things was to just clean out the system. Otherwise, the system never changes, like it happened in the Soviet Union. There was only one leader of the USSR, which was actually taken down from from his position and went in retirement. He was forced in retirement. Everyone else died in the office. And it was our nice Tavarish Khrushchev, the general secretary of the Communist Party. And at one point he was also the prime minister or the leader of the government. But seriously, when we're speaking about general secretaries, very rarely they actually fulfill the roles that prime ministers or presidents do in other countries. Soviet Union, in all of its existence, had a prime minister. But nobody cared, because the prime minister was such a formal figure that he never even appeared on television and nobody cared, because everything was so entrenched with this communistic party that essentially, remember this, the general secretary is not a governmental position, it's a party office. The person who is the general secretary of the Soviet state is just the lead person of the communistic party. Now and then, sometimes, but not always, he was also appointed to be this prime minister, leading minister, minister of war, some minister of the state itself. But some of them didn't even bother to do that. Because what communistic party did was they had their inside ranks of how high you were in the party, and you couldn't take any governmental positions if you weren't in the rank in the party, according to which you could then be appointed by higher-ups in your party to the given position. Therefore, when you speak about the general secretary being the leader of the Soviet state, yes, he was the de facto leader of the Soviet state. But note that... The Soviet Union also had a bunch of ministers, and technically there was the Speaker of the House, which was sort of the Prime Minister, and sort of the leader of all of this Congress thingy. But but again, the Soviet Parliament didn't decide a thing, they didn't even vote on stuff which wasn't approved in the party Congress before that. Because when we speak about some Congresses in the Soviet Union, they're always the party Congresses, but there were also some governmental sessions to, to like produce some sort of legitimacy which didn't fool anyone and of which, well, not many people know about because everything happened in the party. This is an important distinction. Just I mentioned it here so that you would start to understand how crazy the system was. You couldn't just elect people, other people in the government. Remember that. And that really makes it a truly bureaucratical thing. Uh, in comparison, now look look at the modern Russia, and I'm going to go a bit political here. Look at how Putin just stays on top of his own party and then switches around with Medvedev. He also used to be in KGB, just a reminder, but essentially, yes, Russia is sort of, in a very twisted way, a continuation of the Soviets. But now, what did the standard people do? You have this this party, 
whose leader at uh, 1960 was Mr. Khrushchev. Nikita Khrushchev, he's famous for doing very, very silly things in uh, the United Nations Congresses, such as slapping his shoe on the table and screaming, we will bury you. Yeah, there have been many explanations for why did he say that, but he was a bit of a silly man, actually, and there's not much to it. He was just very, very angry because he truly wasn't even informed, because the army was also very important in Soviet state about what was going on there. So you have all these higher-ups, and a lot of people are in the party, even in the lower echelons, because, hell, party is your way to getting a better career. But most people in the Soviet Union were slaves. No, wait, not slaves, but serfs. Yes, serfs would be the proper term for this. Not talking about city dwellers here, because... Russia is still huge, Soviet Union was even larger. It was mainly an agrarian, industrial country. It wasn't urbanized to the point that modern Western countries are today. Most of the people living in the Soviet Union were farmers. They made up most of the USSR's population. People who were living in their countrysides and working in kolkhoz. That's kolektivne hazaistva, or in other words, collective household, collective farm. Basically, how this came to be was that in 1917, when the revolution happened in Russia and the Soviets took power for the first time, there weren't any kolkhoz. They literally did what they promised to, they split up the land and just gave it to the peasants. The problem with this was that, you know, they they split all of this, up in tiny little parcels and gave every peasant or farmer. I don't know what would be the proper name for these people at at this time, but they each got their land allotted to them according to how many people lived in their families. So, of course, the lazy peasants starved as usual. The ones who really, really, who, who tried to do something and work hard, they were prosperous enough. But then there were those who worked really, really hard and got really well off. And then... There were those peasants who worked extra hard, they produced not only enough food for themselves, but basically they were the ones feeding the whole Soviet system. The trick is that if you produce enough for yourself, then why the hell would you need a government which produces nothing but weapons, basically? And, you know, the only one who could actually buy food from you, which was like leftover, grain, for example, was the state. And the state bought it for extra low prices, and then sold it to people living in the cities, or just back to you, back to your poor neighbors, for extra high markup prices. That's how the state got money. And when Tavarish Stalin decided he needed to build railroads everywhere, what did he do? Well, lowered the grain price, and made sure to just sell all the grain to the United States of America, or wherever, and then use that money to just industrialize the country. It seems okay in principle, right? But if the only thing that your country produces are weapons, basically everything is just made, the country is a huge, large weapons factory, and there is nothing in the stores because of that, then you kind of sit and you decide that, yeah, you can just sell all this grain, which is like you don't need it to feed your family, and you have bought your pair of boots, You maybe even have a bicycle, 
well, you have some other things, but technically you grow your food yourself. You have some cows, maybe some pigs, and you can feed yourself. And hell, you can't buy anything, and you can't even buy a gun there. Guns were always illegal in the Soviet Union for private people. Even the cops didn't carry guns around all the time. You literally can't buy anything after a certain point. And you know the government is going to pay you extra low for anything you, you, you kind of try to sell them. So what is a farmer to do? Of course, they just stopped selling grain to the, to the state. They just kept it and, you know, fed their own families. What's the point anyways? Because they didn't need the government for, to supply the food for them. That, again, caused starvation in the country for the parts and the people who were less well-off and the, uh, the government had less money to spend on their military. Because, of course, factories which produce things that people actually need, yeah, very few, far off, and there's literally zero work efficiency there. So what happened was that, at first, all the rich peasants were declared to be the so-called kulaks. They were declared once again to be the enemies of the state and of the people, and were basically shut down, sent to Siberia, killed, sent to gulags, their, their stuff was confiscated, Essentially, everything was taken from them, and the state had money once again. People, yeah, still starving. Just, uh, that's how Golodomor was basically instituted. Oh yeah, and then the state just said, you know what? We are not gonna pay you for the wheat at all. We're just gonna take all, everything you grow, and take it from you, and use it as we wish, and then we can sell it back to you for very, very high prices. Of course, those peasants who didn't enjoy this prospect of their stuff just being taken from them, yeah, they were declared kulaks as well, and promptly shot. There were even stories about, you know, some peasants were hiding this, and there was this cultural story about a little boy called Pavlik Morozov. He was a national hero in the Soviet Union, and there were kids were taught about his deeds in school, and his big act of heroism was being a complete asshole. To his parents, no less. Essentially, the story goes that Pavlik Morozov's dad, at this era, slightly before the World War II, decided that he didn't want to give his grain for free to the government. And, of course, in the propaganda, it was farmers such as these who were blamed for mass starvations, not Stalin's policy of just grabbing all the grain and then selling it to the United States of America or Canada or wherever to just get more stuff for his industrial plant weapon production, basically. Soviet Union made good tanks, and not much else. So, this Pavlik Morozov's dad decides to hide some of his grain so that he could feed his own family. Because, oh yeah, they just didn't take the surplus grain, they took all the grain that you had. And Pavlik Morozov, being the little and brave commie boy that he was, told the authorities about this. And the authorities promptly shot his mom, shot his dad, took the grain and said, thank you, Pavlik, great job. The story ends quite sadly from the Soviet perspective, with Pavlik being just lynched by everyone else in his village. They built some monuments to Mr. Pavlik. Tavarish Pavlik, more likely. But yeah, the little 15-year-old kid who betrayed his own family and they got shot was treated as a huge hero, and his sacrifices were noted. Such were the heroes of the Soviet era, by the way. After the farmers tried everything else and just tried to survive and didn't want to cooperate with the Soviet governmental institutions, and really those who were well off, like I said, didn't need them, because they were all just bureaucratic thieves. 
So then the government decided to create these nice kolkhos. Essentially, all the land literally gets taken from you. You now own nothing. So you get dragged into this kolkhos with all of your pals who live next to you. And yeah, I guess you know something about that because there was these collective farm halls. Now then, the people in kolkhos weren't paid at all. <laughs> Again, serve them. They were given a portion of the produce at the end of the year as payment back to them. Someone up there in Moscow decides for this five-year plan, because everything works only in these plans, decides on how much, for example, grain, this set kolkhos, for the sake of argument, let's presume this one kolkhos, which is named after Lenin or whatever, only produces grain. So, they have a plan on how much grain should they make in a given year. Then, all of the grain is taken by the government, but they get some grain back according to the plan and had they fulfilled it. The problem is, the plan is terribly stupid, because it's made in five-year intervals, and due to the fact that all of the prominent people in your village who knew how to work and were successful farmers have been shot by KGB, or at that point CKGB because that organization shifted its names a lot, because they actually knew how to make anything. Oh yeah, and all the remaining ones, like not the very best of the farmers, but some of them which were quite okay, and could feed themselves, they knew where the wind was blowing, and your kolkhoz is thus run by either an administrative functions, not the real work in the fields, is basically done by these more well-off farmers, or KGB agents, or people who were completely useless, people who weren't good at their jobs, but who had told nice men from the KGB that, hey, hey, this guy's a kulak, he's hiding some, some bread in his home. And accordingly, someone gets shot, you get promoted for being, in Russian the term is stukach, someone who tells on other people. So, Kolkhoz is administrated poorly, and everyone who has to work there doesn't properly know their own jobs, and there are zero incentives to produce anything. You get paid according to your work, technically. You work a day, and depending on your productivity, your politically assigned KGB agent who runs the kolkhoz writes a number in his calculating books. One, if you fulfilled the day's plan, and they had plans for everything, even how long and deep the ditches were going to go, but the trick is 0.5 if you did a half of it, and 2 if you did twice more. My grand grandfather worked in the civil engineering. He built roads. And I have read some of the old newspapers, and there were quotes like this. <clears throat> Great success! People from the Kolkhoz Yellow Sun have overdone their ditch-digging plan by 300%. That makes the local newspapers news. They get all sorts of rewards for overdoing the plan but then again you start to think about it that what they had a plan on how much ditches they needed to dig for amelioration in a year or some road needed some side ditches or something and did, did they like dig deeper ditches or, or did they dig more than was necessary or what the hell was going on there of course nobody cared it was all according to plan if you do more than your plan then you get promoted no matter that nobody really really needs more of the stuff being made. Of course, all of these people who were up there, they were corrupt as hell. As the plan quotas, 
were more often than not completely unreasonable. And if you weren't on their good side, then you could have just worked your ass off, but you wouldn't get paid more anyways. And this was the famous blatty system. And you're not paid any money at all, you just, like I said, get back some parts of the produce which you made at the end of the year, and the state takes everything you make anyways, and you can't even sell it to anyone. So why bother? So, the, the old saying, which was... Okay, it's not an old saying, but there's this nice video on YouTube, The History of the Soviet Union According to Tetris. Yeah, pointless work for pointless pay. That's what happened. And that just went more and more downhill, because while Stalin was busy shooting off people who didn't work and, and, and forced through really military means some form of people working there, after Stalin, people just stopped caring. And the trick was... During Khrushchev's time, and even Stalin kind of allowed to, you know, you work your day quota in Kolkhoz, because you have to, and you have this small plot of land next to your home, or if you lived in an apartment building in your backyard in the countryside. You had this small plot of land, and that's how people survived back then, because you can't actually get enough food to feed yourself and your family in the Kolkhoz, because nobody works, because there is no point. And even if you work really, really, really hard... Well, that means your quota gets increased, and you get miserable scraps back anyways, and they get stolen by the corrupt people who just distribute them, which is, guess what, the party. So people were just growing in their next-to-the-home plots. During the nights, during the evenings, whenever you didn't have to go to work in Kolkhoz, you came back at home, and then you were working your own tiny plot of land, which the government allotted to you. But then, after a time, and it was about 2.5% of this land there, but this might shock you, these 2.5% of land, which is just literally a small plot of land outside of your home where you live, like your backyard, produced about 60% of all the food eaten by the whole population of the Soviet Union. Because everyone had... If, if you lived in the city and you didn't have this land, you had relatives in the countryside who did, because most of the population lived in the countryside. So these 2.5%, approximately... 2.5% produced more food than all the kolkhoz of the state combined together. But you see, these plots of land, when I say 2.5% of all the land, yeah, it varied around. Because there are studies of people, like my grandfather and his cousin and people like that, who basically told me about the fact that they had apple trees growing next to their homes. Their plots where they grew potatoes and onions and tomatoes and, well, vegetables, essentially, in the trees. But, you know, once again, if you had too much of this, then you didn't need the government and you didn't didn't sell it to the government. The government didn't take it to you, so you worked less, bought less stuff, and, you know, had too much money in your hands and too much resources, which was dangerous. Because some people, again, you know, as you can't buy anything in the stores, because everything goes to the army, and uh, there is nothing in the stores, literally, and everything is only for the army and for the liberation of your capitalist states. Again, if you grow everything yourself, even if it's your own home plot, you become dangerous to the system because you just start stacking up money and not really caring or buying anything. Which means if you have enough of money for yourself, that means you are more independent. So, they, yeah, they literally made people cut off their apple trees next to their home or some tractors could come up to your home and just destroy your home garden because, you know, the state deemed it was too big. That land was given back to the kolkhoz, which didn't even use it. 
because it has its own plan and it just couldn't use its own workforce to work more land, especially land right next to someone's home. But if you just manage to start growing there just back up again, there are people checking on you, and if the said previously mentioned Stukachi like told some KGB agents on you, then yeah, you could you could get into a lot of trouble. And I'm not speaking fines here, I'm speaking about you being dragged to the public court, maybe sent to work off in Siberia or something. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You could, like, really get into trouble. So, all of the time, the Soviets tried to kind of control the population in a way of kind of starving them and limiting them out of food and freedom, which this food implied. They really tried to control all of this. And this is also all these industrialization programs and all of this, that there is not enough grain to feed your own country because of the utter inefficiency of the system, but when the government takes all the grain and all the foodstuffs, they just export it outside anyways to get more cash in. And the other main income source from the countryside, who also made the very basis of the economy of this whole industrialization and, you know, steel mills, Tank factories, all of this with which you can associate the Soviet Union, all of this military might. Yeah, these were basically made by the prisoners and all the buildings too. Most of the buildings were built, well, not in the central parts of, of Soviet Union. No, 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 no. The Siberia. All of the roads in Siberia, all of this. In prison. Prisoners and gulags mined in the USSR's gold. Uranium, iron, rare metals, everything. Prisoners who didn't need any food, or very small amounts of it, and could be shot at any moment. All of them, gulags. Concentration camps, who were actively used way into... Nope, actively used all the way through, up until the very start of Perestroika. Who made Stalin's planes, nuclear weapons and tanks? Prisoners. Also rockets. That's right, if you were a talented person, we'll put you into a gulag and force you to work. Russian rocketry, Russian rocket program, was made possible by the engineer Karolyovsky. He made the rockets with which the Soviet Union launched its first satellite into space. He made rockets, he built and designed rockets which shot Gagarin into space. He himself was sitting in a gulag for a while, up until Stalin's death. All of his teeth were beaten out, and he was given prosthetic teeth, and he was enslaved there as to make rockets. He was also forbidden to leave the area where he was living so that the United States spies couldn't get to him and he couldn't escape, so that he couldn't teach anyone else from the outside world except especially politically checked agents that were sent on him. He was just controlled in this completely closed environment. And the Soviet state didn't even tell anyone, including its own citizens, the name of the constructor and the designer of these rockets. It was so secret. And he was still in prison technically, under this arrest, uh, fully controlled, 
even then when he was launching these rockets. And he was declared an enemy of the state at one point before that, just to get him into this gulag prison system. Of course, his gulag wasn't the one where, you know, he didn't have to mine uranium with his bare hands. It was more like a house arrest with nice people from KGB looking at you and threatening to shoot you if you, even if you do so much as to leave the secret facility where you work. And there were a lot of people like that. Tupolev and other people who made Soviet airplanes. Same thing. If you're a smart designer person who produces military stuff and designs it, you literally get put into these closed facilities. So, Karavlyov got his medals and everything he got while being technically and officially and officially an enemy of the state. And only after his death his name even was revealed to the public in the USSR. All these nice, nice people... And all the generals, by the way, in World War Two, also, well, a lot of them, like Rokossovsky, uh, were also Gulag prisoners. Rokossovsky, for one, came out straight of the Gulag, took an army, which was also all made out of Gulag prisoners, and just led it. So, while the city dwellers, well, a bit more well off, they still were dependent, and the whole system was dependent on people in Kolhos, just working there, essentially being serfs and working for free, and of the prisoners, of huge, massive prisoners doing all the hard, terrible, terrible work, such as building building military-industrial complexes and building and tank factories in the middle of Siberia, while being paid pretty much nothing. Ah, but then you ask, why didn't the Kolkhoz people just move to the cities? They couldn't. They didn't even have passports. See, unlike your nice United States of America, where, I, as far as I know, you don't need a passport, and a lot of people don't have passports there. It's different now in the European Union. We all have either ID cards with photos or passports because it's just scrambled up. I can't imagine. My, it's, it is illegal for me in Latvia to live without a passport. But in the Soviet era, it was a bit differently. You had a passport and you had this place of residence written into that. There was, an, there was a special selection of where you live, your home address. Or if you didn't have a passport, the place where you live in was also just written in some journal in the Kolhos. And you couldn't change that place of residence. Unless you specifically went through a large bureaucratic process, got a passport in the first hand, and more often than not, you couldn't change it at well. Essentially, your place of residence was where you were supposed to live, and changing it was a hugely, hugely complicated process in which you had to go to your KGB officer and explain why would you want to move, what is the reason for this, you just couldn't do it right now, just can't move to other cities. What's even worse, you know, as I said before, the USSR wasn't a huge monolithic entity. It had a bunch of republics and administrative divisions within it, and even the republics were administratively split. So, for example, if you're a person who's a farmer in modern-day Ukraine, which had 16 districts inside of it, and you want to travel to another district, still Soviet Union, still Ukraine, you work in a kolkhoz, so that even to travel for a while to Moscow and buy sausage or cheese there, because there in Moscow and in many ways in Riga and Tallinn, because we were the western parts of it and we had tourists and we had to look good, and Moscow always had to look good because there was the government, yeah, there there was something in the stores now and then. There were also huge lines for everything and not everything was there all the time, but Moscow always had to be supplied. 
So even to go there and buy your own sausage, you went to your local KGB officer, wrote down that you're going to Moscow to buy sausage, and then he gave you a card, and you had to be back at call hosts and register for your work after a while. And it was literally impossible for you to move as long as your prescribed address, your assigned address in this call host, it was impossible to change it, basically. There were some ways, and that is why people went into the army. If you go to the army, and then you come back, then you could just assign yourself to overduty, the so-called, you were conscripted in the army, but you could elect to stay in the army after that and get a new, essentially, get a new job in the same position, you become a specialist, then you can apply for the officer school, or if you just go to the university after the army, which is easier to get into. For city dwellers, it was a bit more easier. They had passports and it was, they were a bit more more human than the people in Kolhos. And if you married someone living who was living in the city, then you can move there. And a lot of people were just trying, really desperately, trying to get out of Kolhos and move to the cities. And then Mr. Khrushchev decided that, oh my god, now we don't have enough grain again. And there were some revolts uh, at the same time, for example, when when things happened in Hungary, a lot of pe- in the 1956s. At that time, a lot of pe- a lot of cities even revolted around the Soviet Union. The, the the protests were suppressed, and you didn't hear about them in the West, of course. But they happened, and they weren't as peaceful as the ones in Ukraine, because the Soviets also have shot down mass demonstrations with tanks, same as they did later in Georgia and in Lithuania in 1981. So there were a lot of social issues in, in the Soviet era. And about the people who went to Moscow to buy sausage, yeah, that turned out to be a huge problem as well, because if your local store has nothing but macaroni, oil, and some preserved fish in a can, then you kind of want to go to Moscow to buy some cheap, crappy sausage and then travel back to your place, whatever it is. Yeah, and then the Khrushchev decided to give out these special buyer's cards to people whose registered place of life is in Moscow. And if you didn't show that one to the clerk when you, when you went to Moscow, he just wouldn't sell you anything. Of course, that just made black market boom. And everything in the black market, of course, was thrice as expensive, but hell, nobody cares, right? Because if you have access to some goods, basically everyone is also stealing from their own country all the time. Because if you know that everything that your factory, which is like the only factory in the whole district that, for example, produces shoes, and you know that all of these shoes will be taken from you, 90% of them will go straight up to the army and you'll never see them again, and the other 10% will be distributed to Moscow, maybe St. Petersburg, maybe Riga, and you'll never see them again, and for you to actually see some shoes in your local store, and those shoes that will get to your end will be the crappy shoes, which were made poorly, then what do you do? If you make a good pair of shoes, you steal them from your own workplace, and you don't steal just one pair of them, because you know that all of your friends who live in other cities of the district or somewhere else, they also need shoes. But some of them work in, for example, a sausage factory. So so someone who just steals sausages from his factory can trade them for shoes, either using the pointless money as a means of exchange, or, more often than not, vodka. Vodka was produced en masse because due to the fact that people just couldn't buy anything and everything was going into the black market, there was this huge concentration of currency in people's hands, and like I said before, the government didn't like the stacks of currency in your own hands. So yeah, the vodka was basically made up as a plan how to rid the people of of their cash. 
and as they had nothing else to do, yeah, so that's how the famous let's get completely wasted stuff comes from in the Soviet legend. Of course, this didn't apply to the so-called nomenclature, <clears throat> nomenclatura, the upper echelons of the Communist Party. Oh, they had everything in the stores. They had uh, imported stuff from the United States of America in the stores. They had everything. And there were these special clothes stores where only the high-ranking party officials could just could just buy stuff from there. And, you know, in the ordinary stores for normal people, literally mostly nothing. Like in Venezuela, at one point, which, where, where there was this huge... When Chavez were, was coming into power and Venezuela got more socialized, same as with every socialist country, you literally start losing things in the stores. My dad and a lot of people here have told me that if you just went home from your work in the factory and you see, you'd see a line, you'd just stand there. Because they were actually selling something that people wanted. The salaries for the paid workers, in cities that is, were quite okay as everything has had a set price, and gas, electricity, and heating were free. Well, almost free. For some people, it was free, of course, but the prices were quite much lower than, for example, what I pay now in the free market. But there was just nothing in the stores. People stood in line just to buy some sausages, hot dogs, whatever. Basically, the breakfast hot dogs were sold irregularly, now and then, from a government-owned truck who drive in your neighborhood. Sometimes they'd show up in stores, but that's because the store's salesperson had given away half of them to his friends, like I told before, because all the, all the store's salespeople were also stealing everything they could. They'd be pre-packaged in 200-gram bags, which were tossed out of this truck to people, or, like I said, very rarely sold in a store. If you wanted some actual meat for your, for example, wedding party, anniversary, whatever, you'd have to call up your relatives in the countryside and ask, hey, maybe someone someone knows someone who is illegally uh, growing a pig, or he has a pig, maybe he could, like, slaughter it and sell us the meat. Or you could go to a corrupt officer in the kolkhoz, or just call up someone you know who knows someone who can just sell it to you unofficially, and that's how people lived. The store bought 200-gram wieners... Yeah, maximum of one pack per, pa- per person, because there weren't enough of them to go around anyways. And the situation, like the one with the sausages, was, well, basically with everything. Why? Because, again, everything went to the army. Because, as you might imagine, in such a system where there is zero legitimacy from the people, where there is essentially one party control of everything, and they can just shoot you or put you into prison, they needed to keep control of everyone that was in this large empire. So the army was the basis of everything, and the army was used to prevent people from escaping from the Soviet Union, which they did constantly. People used all sorts of tactics to just escape and run away from this country, so the Soviet army used every means possible to not let anyone go out of the Soviet Union. Yeah, I'll I'll talk about the attempts of escaping from the Soviet Union and its wonderful border guard, which could have just easily taken on its own a few other countries. The Soviet border guard was so strong and tough that they could have just taken a couple of other countries' united armies together on its own and just beat them in a fair battle. But it wasn't used to prevent people from getting in the Soviet Union, unless you were spying, but all kinds of tourists and everyone was welcome. Because again, Moscow, Riga, Yurmala, Tallinn, 
the western part of it, and the St. Petersburg, of course, there were the showcase cities. And even then, I mean, the sausage tossing incident from a truck and the huge lines, they happened in Riga, and we were, like, in the western border of the Soviet Union, and we were the most seen part of it. So, the army. But before I go to the army, of course, I can't state that the life was completely terrible for everyone, excluding the party members, of course. There were some people who were living really, really poorly in the Tsarist regime, for example, and their lives might have improved a bit. And there were some kolkhoz in certain communities where the leaders of the kolkhoz were really nice, good people who tried to take care of their communities and who were fair. We we had the we had such a one leader of kolkhoz here in Latvia in Lielvarda, kolkhoz large places or bear slayer, which is the national Latvian hero. Yeah, the people still together sometimes come together to remember the leader of this kolkhoz for like he was leader for like forty years, Edgar Skowlinj, and some people still did quite well by living there. But again, that was the absolute minority. If you happened to live in a place and you had a really nice community and you managed to work some things out, screwing the system and morphing and truly helping each other, which you had to do, then you were considered to be lucky. But again, that was a huge minority, but it's just a testament of how enduring the people were. So, Soviets needed the military to threaten other countries, to get what they wanted, to, to look scary, to not be invaded by Americans or so they thought, and to try to turn other countries to socialism. The Berlin question, why the Berlin Wall was built, it was a huge drain of resources of the Soviet system, because that small West Berlin part is one of the reasons why the Soviets collapsed economically. A brain drain, yes, a brain drain happened through the West Germany, and specifically through the West Berlin. All the smart people, everyone people from Cheka, uh, everyone was escaping through West Berlin, and the greatest plan of all the Soviet leaders was to m unite Germany under one socialist government, so that the people couldn't, while visiting East Germany, look through and see how the people in the West Germany lived through, because West Berlin was unprotectable. So that is quite possibly the biggest smackdown in the face for the communists after the World War II. All the West Berlin issue was the reason why the Cuban crisis got started. At least, how I view it. But that's for a different story. Back to the army and the economy, then. So, what about the army? Well, the army had everything. Besides the funny stories, which I'll tell you some other time, I've read some interesting questions about the Soviet army budget and, the mili and their military spending. Yeah, some people have asked me this information, especially you Americans. That usually makes me laugh a bit. <laughs> no, really, if someone asks, what was the Soviet army spending for the 50s? You see, the true answer truly is any number of rubles without the need to specify. It worked like this. For example, our, my, one of my favorite Soviet general secretaries, Tavarish Khrushchev, decides to plant missiles in Cuba and blow the hell out of you dirty capitalist pigs. You have sausage, coffee, and way less starving people. Therefore, everyone who has half of a brain in the USSR wants to live in the USA and buy your awesome Wrangler jeans and Coca-Cola. Because we had heard of such things, and when they were smuggled in, let's just say a pair of jeans, any kind of jeans, went for about $1,200 in today's money in the black market. It was huge back then, like I told you. Also, uh, on, on a side note, I remember I saw my first bottle of Coca-Cola when I was about seven in Latvia. But before that, I have pictures, which I'll, I'll try to find and post, because it was considered to, like, 
be really, really cool and stylish if you were a Soviet citizen and you were like one of these hip, cool guys who loved everything Western stuff to just somehow acquire an empty can of Coca-Cola and you just put it on your bookstand so that everyone could see that you have a, you have a can of Coca-Cola in your home. That meant you have drank that American drink. And when you actually acquired this can of Coca-Cola, you poured it into a cup like, you just split it up into shots and you called all of your friends in and it was like the central element of your party to only get a can of Coke. And it was ridiculously expensive as well. But yeah, we liked American stuff. Back to the army. <clears throat> because of all of this, the Soviets just have to free the crap out of you and install a worker's paradise there. So, Tavarish Khrushchev, as the leader of the USSR government, gives an order to get the missiles moving from the Soviet Union to Cuba. He gives the order to the people in the army responsible for the missiles. So then the army goes to the Ministry of Transportation, because the army itself doesn't have enough transport ships to move the missiles there, because it was a huge project with false cargoes and everything, and it was basically disguised as if it was a civilian transport fleet going there. So the leaders of the army go to the Ministry of Transportation, who owns all the civilian ships. Sort of civilian, of course, they were always used for the army. And the army then asks, how much for the missiles to our friendly brothers in the Freedom Island? Because the Ministry of Transportation are the only people who, like I said, own any transportation ships whatsoever and can operate with them. The Ministry of Transportation decides to ask one trillion rubles to the army command for this, for this moving of missiles. The army command goes to the Khrushchev, who is like the leader of the state, and basically says, hey, General Secretary, which, again, like I mentioned before, rem remember this, which is a party title, not a governmental one. But as all the party leaders were the real leaders, it's okay. So they ask, General Secretary, the Ministry of Transportation says that the expenses for them to transport all our missiles from the bases here, through the with the railroads, through, to the ports, and from, from the ports to Cuba, will be one trillion rubles. They ask this amount of money to us. Okay, says our old Tavarish, and sends the Ministry of Transportation all the money they need from the state funds, as he also has full control of the army. The Ministry of Transportation is extremely delighted, but as they don't even have any budget on their own, because there is only the state budget, and as all the salaries are paid by the party who controls all the state budget, they give out the order to start moving the missiles, and then, happily, send the money back to the state funds from which they had just received it, writing an account to Khrushchev saying that, Look, Tavarish, we're rich. We made one trillion rubles this month. Growth of economy! And thus, no real monetary exchange is even made, because, but everything gets done, or the people involved will get shot, move to Siberia, the usual. And the virtual rubles with no real value have been exchanged. And so, with everything that didn't need to be imported. Only costs were the salaries paid for the including workers, even if they're paid. But they're paid by the state, not by the Ministry of Transportation. And the fuel is kind of under the Ministry of Transportation, but it also gets supplied by the state factories. You get the idea. Everything was the state. Feel free to replace the one trillion with, say, two. Two rubles, not two trillion, I say. In practice, no money was involved at all, because of the pointlessness of all of this. So... Imagine this, everyone just did what they were told, or else went to the gulags to mine radioactive uranium with a pickaxe in Siberia, or got paid useless scraps of paper for which almost nothing could be bought. 
and all the valuables were sold to the United States and other capitalist countries so that we could get more stuff to build bigger armies to install this nice workers' paradise everywhere. I think it can easily be said that the Soviet Union was the best friend of the American military-industrial complex because of everything was going on here. This was just crazy. What, what money? What budget? General Secretary didn't have to pay for anything. He could just walk into the automat- automobile factory and say, Hey, you're making some nice pobedas here. I would like to have one. And then the best engineers of the whole country would put their heads together and build a very, very special pobeda, or Volga, which was a much more prestigious car, for a great general secretary. Communist Party owned everything. They owned every last bit of cash. And everyone just did what they were told, and they were paid salaries. Salaries were paid only for your, like, status, for your prescribed job. The results in the job could give you premiums, but premiums as everything was just stolen away. So, this was how this bureaucracy-run economy worked. Lots of starvation, lots of military spending, lots of useless, pointless work for pointless pay, gigantic chaos, gigantic corruption, everything is just one huge stagnating system. And it just can't run efficiently after a while. There is this nice quote by Stalin, which he always said to his followers when they asked him, hey, why are we exporting grain and letting our people starve? Why not just sell the oil and gasoline, which we have right here, to to the United States of America and otherwise? And Tavarish Stalin had said to people that selling your own natural resources to your capitalist enemies is the betrayal of the state. And this is where Khrushchev comes in, because at one point of his reign, after the 1962, and when things just started to go downhill, he basically kickstarted all of this modern-day Russia, including, which continues the tradition, the export of gas, oil, and everything included just to buy grain back. Although pre-war Tsarist Russia was one of the larger exporters of the grain. Khrushchev and this 1962 is the breaking point of the Soviet economy, where the stagnation period comes, and when everything starts to go downhill for the economy, because it just ran off of Tsar's gold. It couldn't really support itself anymore. This is where the imbalance of extra huge army spending and just people starving in your own country comes into play. Because at that point, Soviets stopped selling their own grain to get money to build more military stuff. They started to sell their own oil and resources out to buy more grain in from the United States of America. Which is pretty bad if you consider that you just want to blow blow them away. But oil and gas are not renewable resources, while grain is. That is why Khrushchev got kind of removed, and he had some silly ideas to fix this whole situation. Khrushchev is famous in the Soviet Union for trying to just blow all the steps away. Literally, thousands of square kilometers of step steps in Siberia were just plowed completely, and wheat were just put into place there so that they could grow and maybe the Soviets could just feed themselves again. The problem is, as everything, it wasn't in, it wasn't included in a plan and they had to shift from a five-year plan to a single seven-year-old pl- seven-year plan and then all the promises which they made to the people about how we're going to live in <clears throat> communism in 1980, which never came. Yeah, due to this terrible efficiency, he basically created an ecological catastrophe by just plowing huge lands in the steppe. As far as the eye can see, a lot of places in Siberia and in the whole Russian Federation were just plowed through, which, of course, created the Dust Bowl after that, which led to even more famine. But at the time, it seemed like a good idea. The problem is, as according to the plan, the plan was to grow wheat. There weren't built enough of wheat storage facilities. Now, about 90% of all of this wheat was never even collected. 
or it was just chopped down, tossed into piles, and just rotted away there. Also, after his first visit to America, Khrushchev decided that, hey, we have this wheat issue here because nobody likes to work, but your corn looks really, really, really awesome. And so, there was this order for all the kolkhoz on the whole Soviet Union to just start growing corn. You see, the trick is, in the places where the climate allowed for the people to grow corn, they already did that, because that's, that's a good food. Everywhere else, in the climate and the temperatures which the Soviet Union ran on, the corn would never grow to be used for human consumption, it could only be used to feed cows and stuff. Khrushchev didn't care about that. An order was an order, no one thought this out, and so everyone was ordered to just grow corn, and if you didn't grow corn in your kolkhoz, then the local KGB guys might just come over. So that also created a wheat shortage, because all the corn that was grown up couldn't be used by humans. It just couldn't grow in these temperatures and the climate. Some of the smarter kolkhoz, of course, did the famous trick, which is one of the tricks why, again, I mentioned previously our Latvian guy from Lielvard, and essentially what they did was they took the field, where they usually grew their grain, and as the inspections came to see if you were growing corn or something else, but the people are lazy, and the inspections basically were you just sit in the car and drive by the field and see that, oh yeah, there's this corn growing there, it's gonna be fine. They just essentially took about two meters wide area around, and on the edges of the whole field, and they planted corn there, and everything else was just wheat. And, of course, as the corn came to its semi-readiness, it was deemed to be useless for human consumption, and everyone was said, oh, well, this is gonna be bad. But then, those nice kolkhoz, they were just told to, oh, you know what, scrap all this cornfield, toss it all out. And that's that's how, basically, the people of Lilvart got their grain that year, because that grain was never written down anywhere, it wasn't supposed to be there. So when they said, yep, we dumped all the corn, then they basically stole the grain they have been raising for their own people, they stole it from the government, redistributed it to the families, and did useful things. Thankfully, the corn project lasted only for two years. But Tavarich Khrushchev, in his really awesome attempt to fix the Soviet economy, did even crazier things than that. He deemed that the whole, let's plow the steps and put wheat there, without any infrastructure whatsoever, all the prisoners, creating a dust bowl and all that stuff, for that to work, a lot of the step is dry. In the first year, he thought that maybe the failure why we didn't get a lot of wheat from the steppe was the fact that it wasn't wet enough. So, thankfully, he was tossed, o tossed out of the government by people a tiny bit smarter than he was, because his plan was to turn the rivers, who usually run in the Siberia from north to south, the other way around, because south, south was already wet and arable enough, although the northern parts of the steppes are too dry. There were literally projects to turn rivers around. Soviets didn't care about the ecology at all. So, when you live in a country where your government can just decide to do utterly insane things like this, we had a lot of people in the Soviet Union, about 200 million people lived there in the, the 60s. So, when you just don't care and you can just grab all the brainwashed fanatics to be KGB agents and shoot you or put you into gulags and just not allow you to do anything, really, you have no control over your life and you really have to be this sneaky, cunning smuggler type to even manage this. Other governments such as this one, and the economy going down the drain, and the army just getting bigger and bigger, and trying to race up with you on the other side of the Cold War. Yeah, people weren't happy with, with what's going on there. So, Mr. Gorbachev, no. The idea that Perestroika was made to just somehow try to fix this bureaucratic, crazy-ass economic process in the Soviet Union, yeah. 
that was the truth. So yeah, this that will be it for this time. Next time I'll try to speak about how the army worked from the inside and how strong it was in like reality and what was going on there. I will try to give you some introduction to the Soviet culture maybe and well... I'm gonna try to find some other quotes about Perestroika and the great idealistic Soviet Union, which is portrayed by Gorbachev in his book, to analyze here. I hope you enjoyed this, and see you next time!